You're listening to The Reengineered You. This week's episode is part two of our exploration about international sports, how the Olympics and FIFA might be bad for economies, and why so, so many young, healthy migrant laborers are dying in Qatar to build eight FIFA coliseums this year. This episode will make sense on its own, but we encourage you to check out part one from last week. Do you remember um, when Salt Lake hosted the Olympics back in 2002? I do remember that. Did you feel like it was it was going to elevate Salt Lake, like it was going to make them a huge tourist destination? It seems like because the whole eyes of the world are on you, and you make all these improvements to your city. So I would think it's just a huge commercial. Come visit Salt Lake City. I, I remember that. Like, I mean... I remember when they didn't put out commercials. I remember them having like local TV interviews that would be broadcast elsewhere. Like it wasn't just like they, they'd record something local talking about how great the Olympics were going to be. And then that would get broadcast onto like, you know, uh, um, international news. And that seems so strange to me. <laughs> I mean, now that we have YouTube, we see local news being broadcast out when something goofy happens, like a stork flies into the camera or something. But um, but yeah, Salt Lake, uh, Sochi, uh, uh, was supposed to get a huge economic boon. Um, like all these places where the Olympics get hosted, they're like, the, the, the idea is it's going to make the local economy go nuts. That they, they, they're going to have tourists will show up and they'll hopefully walk the same sort of tracks and, and attractions and visit the ballparks and things like that. Um, do you want to talk about whether or not that's true? How much the, the Olympics actually affects the local economy? I'm guessing from your tone, it's not as much as we think. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing this a while. I've been doing this for a year with you. Yeah. Uh, you, you can tell when cynicism is rearing its head. <laughs> it's right around the corner. <laughs> cynicism is like a hydra. You, you cut off one head with facts and figures and then nine more come into place. Um, so... I went looking for, I mean, like like many, many articles. We'll, we'll link off to a couple of them. But basically it was, can we prove that the Olympics is good for an economy? Or can, you know, can we prove it's bad? Um, so first I started with the Olympics themselves. I wanted to know what they say. Usually when we do these episodes, I don't start with the journalism of, uh, you know, where, where, what do the reports say? I yeah. look at what um, the the source is claiming. Yeah, this is not a witch hunt. We just dig and dig and dig. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, we're not. My name isn't John Oliver. We we are just trying to figure out uh, what is most likely, like what is actually happening, um, just purely by fact, not a witch hunt. Um, according to the Olympics, quote. The games generated 45,000 job years of employment and contributed 20% of Utah's job growth during the five-year period, 1998 to 2002, when the Olympics happened. An economic mild recession in 2002 mitigated the immediate post-games effects of the spending power. Employment growth did not continue in the years following the Olympic Games. Sounds like it didn't just continue. Everybody left. Yeah, basically. More people left than came. Right. So uh, the Olympics themselves say that Salt Lake didn't have a growth afterward. Basically, the the summary is, but it's not our bad. It was, you know, it was just the tourism industry. They boomed and went away again. 
It's funny. They would have taken credit if it would have <laughs> boomed, right? Oh, totally, yeah. <laughs> if, if it would have exploded, they would have been like, that's us. But, Those but, damn Mormons. <laughs> yeah. But they're like, yeah, no, that um, basically hotels, restaurants, and retailers boomed. But like uh, finances and insurance and ski resorts, they had a temporary uh, increase. And then transportation and construction suffered. So basically, they did almost nothing. The Olympics came. They had a short boom. They went away. It's a five-year party, man. Right, exactly. That is actually closer to the truth, as it was four or five years of boom and party, and then it went away. Um, The Olympics say that they might have cushioned Utah from the uh, worst or or some of the worst effects of the recession. Um, But I kind of doubt that. Like, Like, I don't think that a... A stadium showing up in your town can cushion you from the recession. Bringing in all these snow machines and shit. <laughs> yeah. What what that sentence says to me is basically it was like, maybe we helped. You don't know. You can't prove us wrong is basically what the Olympics is saying there. Yeah, this $60 million ski ramp is not really helping us. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. So um, I got another um, a, a series of studies from uh, journalist resources um and we're we're going to have a link to that um they put together a series of articles that talked about what happened in Utah afterward uh and they said quote uh the 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 full-time and part-time jobs that they brought the olympics brought cuz that was one of Utah's big talking points they're like they're going to bring us jobs they're they're like like Qatar uh, you know, Qatar and all the migrants who are dying there, they're like, but they have jobs. That's the, the ultimate argument. Um, in this study, they say it was entirely transitory. Um, there's no economic residue that can be identified once the games have left town. And um, just anecdotally, I was reading another study that was talking about how most of the jobs they brought, they, they weren't necessarily hiring locals. And a lot of those locals were already employed. Like Like a a concrete pouring contractor is not going to be jobless when the Olympics show up in town. They're going to be employed. They're going to leave pouring concrete locally and they're going to pour it for the Olympics and that money is going to go to the Olympics. So yes, you're employing locals, but you're employing locals who are already working and then the money goes away. Like it doesn't stay in Utah. The school buses weren't going down the unemployment line and picking everybody up. Right. Dropping them off at the, <laughs> at the front of the thing. And they're working for five years and then buying houses and buying cars and buying washing machines. Right. Yeah. They they no doubt there there were um jobless people who were employed during that period of time. Their their economy does bear that out. But we're talking like skilled labor. A lot of the people being employed already had jobs. Um, something I had not expected is how it changes rent prices. Um, so this comes from, uh, Atlanta. So when Atlanta hosted the Olympics, um, uh, they looked at their, uh, rent prices before and after the 1996 summer Olympics. Um, Salt Lake, uh, saw an increase in rental prices near its central city. Um, but Atlanta, their rent prices went up and then basically rippled out and stayed up like, like, not not by a tremendous amount, but it was certainly uh, like it did affect their economy. So great, it's just rent inflation, right? Unnecessary rent inflation that lands in town like a mothership. Like the Olympics shows up, yeah, rent goes up around them because people need places to stay for five years while they set up an Olympic village, 
and then it just kind of stays there when the Olympics leave. And a bunch of sports fans, a bunch of Swedes come over and rent a bunch of apartment complexes. And right. <laughs> so occupancy is at 100%, so they can charge what they want. Right. Uh, finally, from the same source, uh, they talk about jobs. And they say, at the state level, we find strong evidence. It increased leisure-related industries in the short run. Uh, however, the results indicated it had no long-term impact on trade or total employment. So again, every source we can find basically says... They show up, it, it gives jobs out, but but an Olympics does not make for sustainable jobs and not even a particularly long-lasting ripple of jobs either. Basically, as soon as they fold up their tent, the jobs go away. I think a better uh, example is a circus, right? <laughs> circus comes to town. <laughs> exactly, yeah, that, that's p- precisely it. it. It is almost literally a circus. We... We use the term in this uh, in part one of this episode, bread and circuses. It is almost exactly that. Um, so uh, we talked at the beginning of part one about how Qatar overbid for FIFA, that they bid $200 million and that um, it was going to, uh, the amount it's going to cost them is incredible and astounding. We'll get to the final figure later. Um but that seems to be pretty common. Um, most people will overestimate what their building cost will be as well. So whatever Qatar claimed they were going to spend on coliseums, they're over it by now. Like we'll again, we'll look at that. That's apparently common. Sochi did that. Salt Lake did that. Um, Sochi's final budget was so ridiculous. Apparently, this happens during winter sports. Well, I, I totally get that from a construction background, Joe. Because first of all, you've never done this before. And it's such a huge project. How can you really estimate what it's going to cost and the problems that you're going to see because you've never done this before? Right, exactly. Like um, when Sochi did the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, they estimated $12.3 billion, And then it, by the end of it, they're like, oops, we're sorry, it's $55 billion. <laughs> So they had basically had to apologize to their own economy. Um, the Olympic Stadium and the main Olympic Village there was even worse. That came out to be about 12 times their their estimated budget. So, I mean, like, if you're talking about a, a boon to the local economy, tell that to the local economy when they overbid an Olympic village by five, or a factor of five times or ten times. And you have all the locals having sex with the, the Olympians or getting out of the camps and having sex with everybody. <laughs> right. I would be out there. I'd be shaking my fist if I were a construction worker. I'd be like, do you know how expensive that was? <laughs> You're just using it. Yeah. yeah. I, I built a beautiful stadium for you at 10 times the amount we estimated and you using it for sex. <laughs> um, so uh, I do. I want to play devil's advocate if it's okay. Uh, can we like talk about what the benefits of hosting the Olympics, like just really briefly, I found a couple examples of where it actually helped. Okay, let's see. There, there's not many, but last half full kind of guy. Okay, so um, they we talked about temporary jobs, uh, and hopefully after job infrastructure is built, um, that infrastructure continues. So, um, for example, uh, Rio, uh, when they hosted the Olympics, they built fifteen thousand um, new hotel rooms. And to accommodate tourists, of course. Um, Sochi invested $42 billion in non-sports infrastructure. So we're talking roads, airports, rails. Um, you mentioned Qatar is currently building a new airport. So with the Olympics, hopefully, if, if the country survives hosting the Olympics or FIFA or something like that, 
um, their infrastructure is really what what should stay and what the main benefit can be. Um, as we mentioned, uh, Salt Lake only added about 7,000 jobs. So they did not build as much infrastructure as like might have long-term benefited them. Um, they were way more focused on jobs themselves. Um, however, it, it may have actually benefited them to just like have that temporary boon to see if their infrastructure could handle it. So um, it's almost like taking a system and then just testing its maximum. Like the, the Olympics shows up, they fill your streets, they fill your, your beds, they fill your hotels, they fill literally your shitters. Like like they they all flush at the same time. <laughs> they all turn on the power at the same time. So you're really seeing what your infrastructure can handle and you're building for anything that you can't, hopefully. Um, so the bottom line from what I can see, and you can agree or disagree with me on this, Hosting the Olympics kind of seems to result in um, just def- deficiencies for the cities and uh, displacement and and police stating. But what we really want to come out of it is infrastructure. And it's even better and more sustainable if that infrastructure exists before they even make the bid. In an ideal world, say like uh, we here in our city... If we're like, uh, we want to host the Olympics, hopefully we would actually build up our infrastructure before we even start bidding. Um, can I talk uh, one last quick downer before we get off the subject? <laughs> Please. Um, so, so I mentioned the Atlanta uh, Olympics. Um, they had 30,000 residents who were displaced by the 1996 Olympics. They got kicked out of town for... Yeah, um, they they were basically like shoved aside or or moved. Like they, they, I mean, like there weren't homeless. Like there were homeless among them. Those weren't just homeless. Those were also residents who were just in low income areas. Um, it gets even worse for countries that don't seem to care as much uh, about displacement. Uh, Seven hundred twenty thousand people were forced from their homes in Seoul. And the ones who were lucky enough to not have a roof over their heads were just rounded up and housed out of sight during the games. So if you were homeless, that was lucky because you could just be like put in like a, a camp or a tent somewhere or temporarily housed. Um, but that's it's so much worse if you're, you're basically your home gets taken away for the Olympics to take place. For a point of reference, that's like the whole city of Tulsa or Bakersfield, California being evicted. Right. Um, nothing compares to Beijing. Beijing had uh, 1.5 million Chinese people forced out of their homes in the lead up to the 2008 Olympics. So, 1.5 million who were just like, "Yeah, get out of here. We we have a coliseum to build." Um, so yeah, if the economy can can be have a benefit and, and everybody gets to enjoy sort of Olympic fever and and tourism increases, but Really, if if residents aren't displaced, then they can look forward to their rents going up potentially. Um, and if you look at Greece, like all those beautiful stadiums Greece built, they're basically all just bum colonies and um, bird poop collections. Like they, they're those stadiums aren't being used. And I'm a huge sports fan. I love all sports. I love watching the Olympics. 
but it's not really that long in events anyway. <laughs> it's only a few weeks. Right, yeah. It's... <laughs> Is you really worth to turn your town and your life and for people to die for a few weeks of entertainment? Right, die or, or displaced or, yeah, it's it's wild. Um, speaking of, of deaths and building a ton of coliseums we don't need, how did the deaths in Qatar, we were talking about Qatar and, and the, the people who were, you know, the migrants who were dying there, how did that get labeled as natural? Like you said 6,500 natural deaths. What does that mean? I think it's important to talk first about the death toll, the number. 6,500 people. Doesn't sound like a lot, Joe? Yeah, it sounds wild. It's a very, very conservative number, and this is why. They cut that thing off. They cut the death toll counting off two months before this project was done. And those two months are, of course, when they're rushing to get everything done. So it's most likely that there was a lot more deaths. But the worst part about this, and this I just can't get over, two of the major countries that send the most immigrant migrant workers are Kenya and the Philippines. Those two countries, they don't even report the deaths. Holy shit, okay. So the two biggest countries sending people in. So it's way over 6,500. It could be over 10,000. Wow. Now, the injuries were crazy. There's a lot of blunt injuries, things being dropped, people falling from high heights. There was a lot of people died from hanging themselves. But the one that I just can't get my head around was there was a lot of, there was no autopsies done, a lot of undetermined death due to de- decomposition. Okay, so th- their bodies would be found later and it was already in a state of decay? Yeah, so they're in some kind of tucked away corner somewhere or even worse joe are they working over people dead bodies and just not cleaning them up oh that is dark i, hadn't I don't think it that, could be that's that far out of the I, I mean if you are seeing that many if you are if it is a known fact that people are dying at that rate and it's that hot and you are literally working to stay alive like like in that kind of desperation i can kind of almost see that yeah, climbing over because if if you're tucked away in a corner, you never miss. So there's no counting everybody in every day. Right. So they're not teaching these people like they're not even numbers. Well, that was um uh, one of our uh the Guardian when they reported on several deaths. One of them they talked about who who collapsed in his bunk and wasn't found until like you know a couple days later or I don't remember exactly the the period of time, but he didn't collapse in front of people where they could see what had happened. Like it was a mystery to everybody when they found him. When they don't have time to mourn or report, it's just back to work. Right. The number one cause of death was extreme heat. Um, these people working long, hard hours, healthy construction workers. It's 100 degrees to 120 degrees. So they're worked to the point of heat stroke, no water, obviously. Respiratory fa- failure was very common, too. So think about that, Joe. All the dust and all the heat, you're just drowning in your lungs. You literally work yourself to death. So these 30-year-old, 40-year-old breadwinners that are coming from other countries, natural death in quotes means a heat heart attack. Now, we talked about in the narrative that um, Gal Singh Rai committed suicide and that he was hired over here, promised by a recruiter to come over and work and it's going to be great. You're going to work. It makes sense on paper, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Other people have gone. You're going to go work in the richest country in the world in construction. You're going to make all this money. Your family borrows money to send you, so you get there, 
you're hopeless, you're stressed, you're in a foreign land, you're being bullied by your bosses faster, quicker, and you're in extreme physical pain. This is going to drive a lot of people, healthy people, to suicide because they're ashamed about going back home with nothing and their family has nothing back home. Right. Do you want to talk uh, just a tiny bit about the recruiters? But yeah, I don't know anything about them. Okay, so in the Guardian article, they talked about um, every one of these people coming over to, as a migrant worker, they go through a recruiter that gets paid, and it seemed like the rate was about a thousand pounds to about a thousand two hundred, thousand five hundred. So they arrive with debt, like they show up, and the, you know they have to pay an in in country recruiter who who got them the job basically. So um, in America, the, the equivalent is we have recruitment agencies that it's, it's a job agency where they will take a small percentage of your paycheck for a period of time to, to get you a job. They'll place you. These guys are just like they're in debt when they show up. And on top of that, their families stress and pay and, and almost like pay these jackals that, that, you know, take their money for the first, you know, several paychecks while these guys are literally dying of heat stroke. And their pay is not what it was said to be. <laughs> right, yeah. They're they're being promised riches and then they show up and you know, the the employers are like, You're not getting the full time you wanted, also we're keeping your first couple paychecks for security reasons. I know being the history buff that you are, you can't help but think of the pyramids. That's exactly, yeah, uh, the the opening part of our, part one, if you heard that, uh, we, we compare it to the pyramids. And this is, I mean, <laughs> almost down to like the heat they're working in and building giant coliseums. It's like, this is so close to that. Um, oh boy, it's it's going to be hard to 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 sort of frown upside down this, but do you want to try? Do you want to like, what can we learn from Qatar and what can be the long-term political benefits of international sports and international sports tragedies? Okay, so we're we're going to dig deep and we're going to talk about why bread and circuses can work. Um are you are you familiar with the term uh bread and circuses? We'll start there. I am. <laughs> well, I know how it's been used in this. Okay. A lot of lot of use in the last 4 years. A lot of uh the last political campaign, I heard the term bread and circuses come up a lot. Um bread and circuses refers to any time that uh, in politics or in gamesmanship, where the idea is you you give people entertainment, and um, back in old Rome, they would literally throw bread out the back of a cart while people were being entertained in the Colosseums. And um, the the poet uh, Juvenal first talked about this writing, like it was it was almost like a, a parody, and he he talked about um, citizens were failing to be democratic in the Roman Republic. They were failing to vote correctly or vote at all uh, because the Roman Empire, like the, the senates, were just handing them entertainment and food. They were just like, here, do this instead. And and they swayed their votes or got them to stop voting. Um, Throw them some bread and kill a couple people in front of them. And <laughs> right, exactly. Um the good news, though, is that, uh, well, okay, so we're, we're going to start with what the Olympics, again, we're going to go with, here's what the Olympics thinks their benefits are. Uh, the real benefits of bread and circuses, I, from what I can see, is political messages. 
Um, but what the Olympics says it is, uh, quote, the Olympic legacy is first about human, social, and cultural long-term benefits, as this event will remain in the minds of the people for decades. Do you believe that? I have already forgotten almost every <laughs> game I've watched. I am a huge NFL fan, UFC fan, and again, like a goldfish, you don't remember much. <laughs> well, okay, so I, I don't mean to be completely glib about this, and I, I think they really do an amazing job, but like cur- curling, can you remember a, a amazing, you know, like the, the, they take the stone, they sh- shove it down the lane of ice, they sweep in front oh, of it. I know. Yeah, I have boy. watched so much curling just because it is like watching a lava lamp. I don't remember a curling match. I was going to say, you couldn't name one curler's name. Exactly, yeah. Or pick him out if you saw him at Safeway. Right. <laughs> I will remember Michael Phelps winning a ton of medals and seeing a couple of his, his you know, events. But that's, but that's only because we've seen his TV commercials 8,000 times since then. Right, exactly. I guarantee if we hadn't seen those, he would he would be gone too. Yeah, the, the wild upsets and the, the um, Tanya Hardings. Like, we will remember the, the wild stuff, but... Um, those are outliers. Those yeah. aren't. The... I, I think those really are outliers. I mean, there are people who really follow the Olympics, but I don't think the Olympics is. They, they might be giving themselves too much credit for what they do for a nation. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, so the Olympics now in their newest mission statement, and I, I do give them credit for this. Uh, in their 2020 uh, mission statement, they talked about how sustainability is now one of the core pillars of the Olympic agenda. Um, so they're going to be considering whether or not a nation or a country has the ability to host a game, uh, starting from the evaluation of the opportunities and risks of each candidature, as they say. Um, so basically, uh, I'll, I'll let them put it in their words again. Sustainability refers to the strategies and processes applied in decision-making to maximize positive impacts and minimize neg- negative impacts in the social, economic, and environmental spheres. This sounds like a lot of political bullshit. It is a lot of political bullshit, but hopefully what that all means is we're going to stop awarding the Olympics to people who have to move a million refugees, like a million impoverished people to to make this work or who have to import migrants to to host things uh, to to build, you know, eight coliseums that will become bird feeders later. Um so the Olympics knows this is an issue. They know that economically it's an issue. And I really hope that eventually FIFA, if we can get them to pay attention uh, with our money, will eventually do the same thing. We'll start looking at this as a sustainability issue. Maybe they don't ask a country that's never built a single coliseum to build eight in a couple of years. Or the whole soccer fans stand up and say, listen, there hasn't been any good athletes out of that country. Let's do let's reward this to a country that belongs that feeds us with all these great world class soccer players. Right. Exactly. So have you heard about the um, let's let's talk about. So that's the the uh, the political message from the Olympics about how people view the Olympics, how people view the unsustainability of the Olympics. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about um, the the smaller political messages? What happens when um, the players themselves, the Olympians themselves, bring a message to the Olympics? Okay, yeah. So um, sounds more interesting than the. <laughs> yeah, I think it the is. Other one. 
Then they then they sort of uh, uh, boring dry political Olympics. We're working on. We're it, working guys. on this. Yeah. It's not going to happen again. We're very aware of this. Yeah, we're we're sorry. We set up the Olympics in a place where you know Beijing had to move people. Um. So the Olympics has a a long standing history of. Uh, messages like political messages being brought to the Olympics and, and set on fire there. Um, the guardian has an article about it. Time has an article about it. They have pictures, which are, are lovely. Like a lot of them are really iconic. Like I've, I remember looking through this article and being like, Oh, I remember these, like, like seeing this, um, from like school pictures. Um, one of them. Okay. So if we're talking about what is the international sports world good for, um, you've seen that picture from the 1936 Berlin Games where uh, Jesse Owens. Um, so the the picture is Jesse Owens in 1936, and there are there are a couple of really classics. One of them is him blitzing like he's a runner and he's blitzing down the the field, and he's just miles ahead of everybody else. And then there's another one with him on like the blocks, um, giving the American salute, the the you know the almost like the army salute, and then right behind him is the uh, German player giving the the Nazi salute, like the the Heil Hitler right behind him. <laughs> that is kind of the start of of the um, huge political movement in the Olympics. That's sort of our somebody. That's them lighting a match, basically. Uh, in that picture, it's Jesse Owens and um, "quote unquote" the genetically superior Germans, as Hitler put it, uh, did not, could not beat Jesse Owens, a black American, at running. And so, what you're seeing in that picture is actually him doing the the Nazi salute behind him to his country. But he had just been proven wrong. Germany and Hitler had been proven wrong about genetic superiority. And I'm going to touch on this later, that 1936, this was when the Nazi regime and Adolf Hitler were going strong. Right. And the Olympic Committee let them be the host country. Right, exactly. Which was a huge propaganda boost. And who knows what World War II would have looked like if they didn't have that big boost in. Right, exactly. Uh, we're gonna, That's going to be a repeating theme in a lot of these is, is a lot of these protests are about international sports being hosted and what countries don't like that like wh- who they are uh, the olympics likes to think they're not political but it sure seems like a lot of where they host is political like it, it itself is a statement um another picture that is kind of a classic is the 68 mexico games uh in mexico city with uh tommy smith and john carlos who are in first and third in the 200 meters the classic picture is um, two black men on uh, the rising sta- uh, the the platform for the winners, and they're giving the black power salute. Um, and this came right after MLK was assassinated. Um, Nineteen seventy six, you have the African nations boycotting New Zealand because New Zealand's rugby team had just played in segregated South Africa. Um, those are the big major three turning uh, points for political protests at the Olympics. It became so popular. There hasn't been an Olympics since then that hasn't had a political protest, protest in it in some way. Um, literally every Olympics has had a boycott or protest in the Olympics by players. And it's um, become such a, a, 
a protest stage, the Olympics is banned. Um, it still is on. Like um, the Olympics themselves, um, the Washington Post reported on this. They said that um, the it says in quote in their in their rule book, no kind of demonstration or political, religious, or racial propaganda is permitted on any Olympic sites, venues, or other areas. So the Olympics will. Uh, they will try to sneak into it if you host their games that they are allowed to come in and take down signs like if if you and i put a sign up in this window in your house that said down with the olympics while they're in town they got this passed in london once they they actually will try to get the local police force to take down anti-olympic propaganda or slogans in residences and they will also try to keep you from doing any kind of political protest in the Olympics itself. It's no longer a free country. No longer free speech. Right. Yeah. If they can, if they can get away with it when they host in your country, they will try to do that. We tough to do that here in Portland. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, think about it too, Joe. If it fits your hometown, the terrorist threat. Do you want that in your town? <laughs> right. Yeah. It 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 can be a real danger. So, um, yeah. It. I'm hoping that um, what this becomes is is because of the way um, news outrage and Twitter works and the way the internet works. All these protests we're talking about at the Olympics, this all happened at a time before Twitter and before Facebook. I am hoping that as international sports continues, any of those protests basically become their own sort of like, they move more to Twitter and Facebook. They become their own social protests and that's the attention they get. Like kind of like the Colin Kaepernick kneeling thing. That's the kind of political like it, it can spread more without the IOC's, you know, thumbs up. Who cares what the Olympics says as far as like should we allow protests? That's not gonna matter if you have a Facebook following or a bunch of Twitter followers. So we've got um we've got the Olympic Games coming up. We've got the summer games in twenty twenty. And then we've got the Winter Games in, in 2022. And those are in, in Beijing. They're not in Qatar. Qatar is doing FIFA. Olympics and, and FIFA are totally different. Both international sports. But I was wondering, because FIFA has gotten such heat and so much attention. I mean, like, the reason these are both in one episode is because FIFA and Olympics, they take notes from each other. They learn the same lessons. So do you think that the Olympics are going to change their strategy after FIFA's gotten all this heat from from using a, a migrant workforce that is dying? The Olympics is different. It's not FIFA. It's the International Olympic Committee, and it's known as, abbreviated, IOC. Now, the IOC hides behind this screen, behind this curtains of being non-political. But it's, of course, very political. Right. Which you've touched on. It cannot be. Yeah. So they've awarded it to non-deserving countries, highest bidding countries, countries with different propaganda agendas. And the ones coming up, um, one's in Tokyo, but the biggest concern one is the one in China. And there's been over 180 human right groups who have called for a boycott to China's. And one of the main reasons is the way that Muslims in that country have been treated. They think that there might be in concentration camps there over a million people. Have you heard about these? Holy shit. Okay. Um, this was a, a John Oliver episode, I think. Yeah. These are very complex prisons and they're re-education camps. 
and they they swallow up defectors as well. So they have a very good idea. It's most likely there's, there's going to be a huge amount of people forced to work at at these uh, the next Olympics. Okay, so the the Muslim Uyghurs who are currently being used for like small labor, like the the American version is like uh, prisons that are like printing out license plates. The, right. They're <laughs> doing that same thing in China, that China's version of that. Yeah, China's is going to be, there's a very good chance for more slave labor. Not Qatar this time. Now that slave labor is moving to China. Holy shit, okay. That's a little bit grim. So when we say that FIFA and the International Olympic Committee are different, we mean only in their like title and how much they pay their players. Yeah, they're just going to move to another part of the country, another part of the world. Okay. Whatever our background, most of us can remember cheering for someone wearing our national colors. Whether it came from watching Michael Phelps, Aquaman, his way to 28 Olympic medals for America, or Lionel Messi, dominating the field for Barcelona. So it stands to reason that a game capable of bringing a country together would be a net positive, right? But in the case of Qatar, we have to ask, is a short boost of testosterone and dopamine for half a billion people worth 6,500 lives? And it's important to remember, too, that 6,500 lives is an unnecessary cost in the first place. We can have all the benefits without the consequences. If we demand sustainable games hosting countries that already have the infrastructure and the coliseums. If you're wondering, what can I do against such a large organization? What if I want to enjoy the game, but I don't want to support another Qatar? The answer is simple. Don't buy anything with a logo on it. FIFA makes 95% of its money through licensing rights, which means every time you buy an official FIFA video game, jersey, or hat, you're sending profits directly to FIFA while the host country pays the real price. The same could be said for the Olympics, who can and will find mom stores who infringe on their logos and phrases. So please, enjoy the sport for the sport. If you want to support your favorite athlete, or even better, your favorite underappreciated Olympian, send money directly to them. They probably have a crowdfunding site so you can help them pay for the ski poles or boxing gloves. We guarantee you'll feel 10 times better knowing you bought the training equipment for your favorite athlete during their time of need, rather than impulse buying yet another FIFA video game (laughs) or some creepy Olympic mascot plushie that will end up at Goodwill. You've been listening to the re-engineered you thank you so much for listening to the show you mean the world to us we have a new episode every week you can connect with us at www.reengineeredyou.com that's where we have research links show notes and blog articles for each of our episodes we also appreciate feedback and we love spirited debates (laughs) we're not experts in anything but we've got an opinion on everything (laughs) 